Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. We're live. Good evening, world. This is uh, Welcome to this Ignatius Press live interview with Brendan Hodge, author of If You Can Get It, a novel uh, put out this year by Ignatius Press, actually just a couple of months ago. I'm Thomas Jacoby, an editor at Ignatius Press here in, in smoky San Francisco. It's usually foggy, but right now it's gray for a different reason. Um, Brendan, welcome. Yeah, good to be here from uh, muggy Ohio, but not smoky. <laughs> there are perks of Ohio. I, 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 I didn't know that about Ohio, that it was that it was muggy. So if you can get it, you uh, this is your first novel, your first book. Is that correct? Yes, yes. This is the uh, the first novel that I finished and uh, also first published. Has it been a long time in the making? Yeah, I know you've been writing for many years. Uh, it, it has, actually. I, uh, I first wrote a draft of the novel eight years ago. Um, and uh, it was, um, if you've heard of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, I had, I'd been wanting to get back into fiction writing and I kept not having time, kind of the uh, curse of the, uh, the busy married father of well, five at the time, now it's seven. Um, and um, I, uh, so I, I knew people who had done NaNoWriMo and it sounded like a lot of fun. And, and the thing about it is it's one month when you're supposed to sit down and write 50,000 words. So I, I yeah. sat down and did it. Um, and of, of course the novel is longer than that. So then I had to take a couple more months and get around to finishing it. And after that, I sort of left the field of battle in exhaustion and uh, actually worked on some other projects, but it, it was just really kind of nagging at me. And so eventually I came back and revised it and uh, suffered large amounts of rejection before uh, coming to Ignatius Press, where uh, finally someone had the wisdom to bring it out. And uh, here we are today, very grateful for your uh, support. Absolutely. So I should say, I skipped to Brendan Hodges' bio here, but so Brendan Hodges, as he said, he's a husband, father of seven in Ohio. He's a novelist, as we said, and he's the direct, He's also director of pricing analytics. Uh, he's been in the corporate world for many years, but I think he's he might be best known um, in a certain sense for his work. With, uh, his, his, he and his wife run a blog called Darwin Catholic, darwincatholic.blogspot.com, which you've been running since 2005. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's been 15 years now. Strange yeah. to uh, believe. <laughs> has that uh, how how is blog writing different from uh, from novel writing? I mean, drastically, I imagine. Uh, it is quite different. I guess the the similar thing is that um, what as the as the meme goes, the your novel is only going to get written if you sit down and write it. And uh, similarly, if to keep a blog up, you have to sit down and actually put out words. Uh, back in the day, we actually sat down and put out words every day. And since uh, blogging has kind of gradually been eroded by social media, it's more like once or twice a week. But uh, but we we do have longevity at this point. And I hope we can talk more about Dharma Catholic later because uh, I think it's kind of a sort of a, a little institution in the in the sort of Catholic American Catholic blogosphere. So, but I want to talk Great about the. Way, yes. <laughs> uh, I wanted to. I think we should dive right into the book. Um, in fact, I wanted to talk about the opening scene, if we could, because I think the opening scene, in a lot of ways, speaks for itself. So, but I'll give a little summary of the the plot for those uh, those of you viewers who have not, or listeners who have who have not read the book. Essentially, this is a novel about two sisters whose lives uh, have been who barely know each other in a certain sense, and their lives come to come crashing together all of a sudden. Um, they're ten years apart. Their names are Jen and Katie. They're ten years apart. 
Um, and their personalities are as far apart as they're as they are. They're as far apart in personality as they are in years. So Jen, she's a she's a 33 years old, single, no kids, no boyfriend. Uh, she's a she's a young businesswoman in the Bay. She's a Bay Area transplant, like me, actually. Uh, moved to the Bay Area to first to go to, to go to Stanford and to go to business school. You know, she's wild, she's incredibly successful in that regard. Uh, got a great, you know, has had a history of a chain of great jobs at various, uh, I think, probably tech startups in the, in the Silicon Valley. Uh, she's now a, she's now a kind of a, a product line manager at a, at a at a at an app startup in the, in the Silicon Valley, and she's super put together. You know, um, she's she makes a ton of money. She's got a nice car, beautiful condo. She keeps it immaculately clean. Like most Californians, you know, she runs, uh, eats really healthy, untasty food, and I'm sure, even though it doesn't say so in the novel, I'm sure she does yoga. There's no question about it. Uh, she's just kind of a classic Californian, but she's originally from the Midwest. Um, she is a workaholic. She's just sort of trying to trying to climb the corporate ladder in a way. She's she's just gunning for a promotion and just hoping that her her superiors will recognize you know, how essential she is. Okay, now her little sister Katie, on the other hand, I would say is the exact opposite. I mean, she feasts on um, her, she lives on Doritos, essentially Doritos and Red Bull uh, and Coke. She, whereas her sister works these twelve-hour days uh, at the at the office. Katie plays Xbox ten hours a day, and uh, she's she dresses a mess. You know, she definitely doesn't run or anything, and uh, and she doesn't have a job. She's total. She's unemployed, and so her aspirations are like the exact opposite of her. But one thing they do have in common is that they're both uh, really unhappy. Uh, and I want to narrate. Here. So the, the, the sisters are both from, uh, they're from Illinois, rural Illinois, and they are suburban anyway, I think. And their lives come, but, and they, they live 2,000 miles apart, but then their lives come crashing together uh, all of a sudden. And I'm, and I'm going to narrate, I'm going to give this, uh, I'm going to narrate this opening scene because I think it speaks for itself. And I, I think it's a good testament to your writing. So this, chapter, this is the opening page. The cell phone buzzing in her hand was a reproach. Jen had promised herself she would avoid screens and spend her Sunday morning relaxing. Instead, she had been checking her work email, and now Katie was calling. Jen set the phone on the table to let it vibrate its way through the six rings that would send the call to voicemail. She smoothed out the newspaper to read the front page article, knowing even as she did, knowing even as she did so that she was going to pick up the phone uh, and answer it at the last moment, because Katie always got what she wanted. Hey, Katie, what's up? Um, hi. Katie's phone skills had clearly not improved during the last few months. The seconds dragged on as Jen declined to probe why her 10 years younger sister had called. It comes out of this opening scene that Katie, um, she's had a tiff with her mom who's newly converted. She's had this new reversion to Catholicism and her mom's become very morally uh, strict. This repels Katie and she's desperate to move out. She begs Jen, uh, and she doesn't know, and her, Jen tells her, you know, why don't you find somewhere else to live? And Katie says, well, no, I, I would really, I'd really love to live with you. I don't have anywhere else to go. And Jen, and she begs Jen, begs Jen, begs Jen, and Jen finally gives in and says, you know, um, well, I, I like what it says here. She says, uh, so after Jen, after Katie begs, she says, Jen loved her family, even liked them on most days, but it was a love that had been nurtured by having the Rocky Mountains as a privacy screen for the last 11 years. Look, I don't know, Katie. It's really expensive here in the Bay, and if you don't have a good if you don't have a good job, and I'm barely going to be home over the next month, maybe you should think about it a bit. 
you have any college friends you can move in with, maybe closer to home or in a more affordable city. But eventually, uh, Katie prevails on her, and she, she decides to let her move in. And then she says, and then Jen says to her, yeah, OK, when are you thinking of coming? The next couple of weeks are really crazy, bud. And then Katie says, well, I'm parked out front now. So she moved. She drove 2,000 miles. to. Uh, she says, now? A few steps, and I look out the condo's front window showed Katie's red focus parked on the street, with boxes and bags visibly piled in the back seat. So Katie just shows up on her big sis on her kind of perfectionist big sister's doorstep and, uh, and barges right in. And the last thing I want to say before it, I've talked so much, but um, there's a really great image that I think paints the, the difference between Jen and Katie really beautifully. This is, uh, this is just a few paragraphs later. It says, so Katie comes in and she takes a nap on the couch because she's been living on Doritos and Red Bull for, you know, for two days straight, just driving straight and stopping at rest stops. She comes in and Jen says she looks like she just uh, slept, slept, overslept an 8 a.m. class. She takes a nap and it says, when Jen emerged after her shower, feeling damp but virtuous, she ventured back into the living room and saw that Katie remained motionless on the sofa, one leg hanging off, plaid bottom in the air, her head under the cushion, as if the couch were some monster that had paused halfway through consuming its victim. So anyway, so that is uh, that I just wanted to read that. I just wanted to read that opening scene to kind of just set the stage. And I'm, I'm not going to do that again. But yeah. So but my question for you, Brendan, is the difference between Katie and Jen. Uh, what, what, where does this difference come from? They're polar opposites. Where does this difference come from? Is it just a question of age? Is it because Katie's the oldest? Oh, gosh. Uh, I guess that's sort of uh, appealing to my biases as, as an oldest child. But um, I, I'll tell you honestly, uh, the thing is, I wanted to write a story about siblings were getting to know each other for the first time. Um, I, I come from a, a family of three. I'm the oldest. We're all very closely spaced over five years. My wife is the oldest of six, so they span a much wider range. And, and our own kids uh, have a 15-year range. So, I mean, I, I've experienced lots of different configurations of family. And uh, one of the things that had struck me was it would be really interesting to write a, about a pair of siblings who had this really broad gap so that if the older one had left the house at 18, that you know the younger one had been nine or ten when she left, and and you really don't know what someone is like at that point. So suddenly this adult shows up, and you feel like I have a relationship with this person. I I I should be close to this person, but I don't even know this person. Uh, and I, I think there's always an interesting dynamic when you fall into a situation where you you realize that you're going to have to be close to someone, and yet you actually don't know anything about them, and so you have to get to know them at the same time you're building a relationship. Um, and, and I also knew that I wanted to write about uh, about the business world and kind of some of the uh, sly satire of uh, of business life as as I'd encountered it over the years. And so I knew that my my older character needed to inhabit that world. And so I, I, I built Katie at first. My, my first couple ideas were that she was 10 years younger and that she had to be so different that there was this really broad gap. So I kind of started out with, okay, what's the opposite of Jen? Uh, yeah. And that got me to Katie. And then I had to figure out, well, why is Katie so different? And, and then how is it that they possibly bridge this gap and, and come to have a lot of meaning for each other? Because really the, the story, I think the heart of it is about the relationship between these two sisters yeah. and, and the way that they come to care for each other as people during the course of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And Jen, what's interesting about the difference between Katie and Jen is Jen is, uh, it's said a couple of times 
she's got this perfect, you know, she has this immaculate apartment. She's, her life is, seems to be totally in order, but it's very much her order. It's something that she has for herself. You know, it's an order that no one else can intrude in. And then Katie comes and intrudes on, and she doesn't know how to react. And she's been alone for so long, she doesn't know how to treat it. Um, do you think, what's, what's wrong with the way that Jen lives, in your opinion? Is there something wrong with the way that Jen lives alone like this with her, her, her perfect order? I think that there's, I think there's a big chunk missing in her life. And I think that that is part of what Jen spends a lot of the novel figuring out and then trying to resolve. Uh, and uh, part of what, to me, uh, drove Jen and, and created her as a character. And what I think makes her interesting and, and relatable is that she is someone who, there are so many areas of our life. I mean, people talk about sort of the meritocratic elite of, of America these days. There's so many things that seem like a contest and or a game and you, you try to win. So you're in school and you try to get good grades and then you try to get into the right college and then you try to do well at the right college and get the right internship and get the right job and get promoted at the right job. And there's kind of this whole series of contests and you follow the rules in each one and, and you're told that as you fulfill these achievements that you are achieving success and that everything is good. Uh, and Jen, I think, is a, a very a very solid game player. She She's competed at each of these levels and she feels like she's won. And yet there's this sense in which very gradually things are starting to seem like I keep winning and yet I haven't, it's not fundamentally all that different from where I was before. And, and so what else is it that I should be doing? And that starts to push her outside of her comfort zone because she has kind of put, built a very defensive comfort for herself. She's had some relationships in the past that haven't worked out. And so when we meet her, she's kind of built a very self-contained um, world for herself. But it's one in which uh, when in sort of sort of she has two big disruptions at the beginning. One is Katie showing up, who's this force of chaos who gets Dorito crumbs on her white carpet and uh, disrupts everything. And then the other is she has this job that she's been defining herself by that she thinks she's going to get promoted and she gets laid off in a way that's not at all her fault. Her project is about to release and then there's there's a buyout and a corporate restructure and suddenly she's out of a job with a bunch of other people. And Jen has built so much meaning around being essential to other people and it's going to matter if she doesn't show up and suddenly no one's going to notice if yeah. she gets up in the morning or not. And that that causes her to start re-examining a lot of these aspects of her life. Well, what is it that I'm living for? Yeah. I, well, I love you had this. There's a line early on in the book. You say, uh, so she has this job. Her, her job is to manage this product called the Pocket DJ Player. She's in charge of you know this, this product launch. It's just, the, uh, the launch of the Pocket DJ Player was exactly the sort of project to showcase her mastery of detail. Take that hand from the tiller and any number of needs would be forgotten deadlines missed. And if all went well, it would be the faultlessness of this launch that would bring her the promotion to director, uh, acknowledging the level at which she had already been performing for the last six months. Yet her whole her whole life is, is sort of geared around uh, proving proving to others that she's worthy, you know, that yeah. she, and it seems to, yeah, just it winds up kind of devouring her from inside whether she knows it or not. And I had another, I had a question about the difference between Jen and Katie, because Katie, like you say, is a force of chaos. She just plays, you know, she plays Xbox, you know, 10 hours a day. And she's really foul mouthed too. You know, she's just, she's super rude, kind of the opposite of Jen in that regard. Jen's very careful about what she says. Uh, Katie just blurts things out. 
and neither of them are happy. But do you think that Katie, uh, this chaotic younger sister who majored, by the way, who's a humanities major just out of college, I should have said that, um, has, I'm, I'm also a humanities major, so I could relate to her in that way, a lot of ways. Um, does she have something that, in all her chaos, does she have something that Jen doesn't have? I think that Katie has kind of a fundamental insight that allows her to see through some of these external trappings of success. Um, so, I mean, one of the ways that she gets under Jen's skin from the get-go is she just doesn't take Jen's career and corporate success and kind of all of these trappings, she doesn't take them all that seriously. She'd like to live there in the nice condo, the car is nice, um, nice city, but but she doesn't, she doesn't have this almost reverence for uh, the corporate path that Jen is on. Now, I think that Katie's problem is she has kind of that um, irreverence that comes out in so many ways from her her behavior and how she talks to how her attitude towards Jen job she can kind of she can puncture that bubble but she's not sure what there uh what there is out there and you see a little bit of that in her background she she was a you mentioned yeah she's a humanities major she's actually a religious studies major yeah. and uh, when she's complaining about how she came home and and moved back in with her parents and her parents have become newly religious and, and you know now they care if she drinks and they they want to tell her what time to get home and she's like mom, dad, I'm 22. I, I shouldn't have to uh, justify my behavior to you. And Jen is like, well, why don't you like that? You went and studied religion for goodness sakes. I mean, who does that? Um, and, and Katie's response is, well, I, it's not that I wanted to, to be like all holy like them. I want to know, you know, what's out there, you know, Eastern religions, there's got to be some sort of higher thing in the world. I think Katie has a questing sense, but she really, I mean, maybe partly from that irreverence and through seeing kind of a very conventional approach to religion, the extent that she's even seen it at all, growing up as a pretty nominal Catholic until she, she comes back and, and sees her parents in this state, um, she, she feels like she sees through that too. And so there's a sense in which she has to overcome that irreverence and be able to start to build a more nurturing relationships um, and you even see kind of a, a gradual progression. And I mean, you, you mentioned sort of uh, Katie shows up and she's like, she's been drinking Red Bull and eating Doritos while traveling cross country. And one of the first things she does as she settles in is, is uh, Jen tells her to uh, kind of um, pull it, uh, pull it together and do something useful. And um, uh, so Katie starts, she gets a job at Starbucks and she starts cooking stuff. But she, the stuff she's cooking is like cookies and desserts and stuff like that. Yeah. And through the rest of the novel, sort of one of the things that's going on in the background that I think I almost did this subconsciously and then I realized it and sort of worked on it, realized that it fit with the themes, is it gets to where she goes from sort of making treats like cookies and so on to making meals and really being sort of more of a nurturing um having a much more nurturing aspect coming into the, the food that she makes and the way that she starts to work on the house and take care of things uh she is also learning a, a different approach to life and relationships as she moves through now brother you, you mentioned uh, a really key aspect of this book which is that these these neither of these girls i mean they grew up in a nominally catholic family as you described them as kind of they were kind of easter and christmas catholics you know they went to mass twice a year um Neither of them have any faith to speak of, at least certainly not, certainly not the beginning, uh, even though they grew up in, you know, in a supposedly in a, in a nominally Catholic family. And when they do have some contact with Christianity through their parents who have had this reversion, um, they're but a little bit, you know, they're, they're, they're repelled by it. They're either indifferent to it or repelled by it. And you said 
I think it's either either in our communications or in, in blog posts. I mean, you said that this is increasingly it's just true. It's increasingly the norm for young people, you know, uh, even people who grew up in Catholic families that they maybe they're sort of in they they're they're in a Catholic environment. Perhaps they have contact with it, but it just seems sort of irrelevant to them. It doesn't really touch them. And I, I if I'm not mistaken, you you wrote you wanted to write a novel that reflected this lived reality, right? Did, did you think it was important? Do you think it's important to write it? Did you think it was important to write a novel that was set in this uh, sort of in, in this atmosphere of kind of of coming into contact with the church, coming into contact with the faith, but being sort of numb to it? You know? Yeah, I guess. Uh, what is it in um, in Brideshead Revisited, which is one of my favorite novels? Um, there's a point where uh, Charles, the the main character, who's an agnostic uh, for most of the the novel. Um, is having dinner with this Catholic family, and, and he asks the daughter, sort of, why do you keep talking about religion? And she says, well, it just comes up naturally. And he says, well, I don't think it does. And she says, well, maybe you are an agnostic. Uh, she's sort of shocked. She thinks there's been a pretense of his. And um, I, I guess I, I would say that I, I am a, a Catholic writer in the sense that, I mean, obviously, I, I, I am myself a faithful Catholic, and so that informed my worldview. But also, I, I can't if I'm gonna think about a character, I, I have to figure out what their religious background and viewpoint is. I mean, it, it's it's as essential as knowing what job they have or whether they're married or not. You can't just not know that about someone. Um, but I, so I, I, I knew that Catholicism was going to come into the story to some extent, but I also wanted to, to write a story which was, um, which was accessible to a broader audience and which kind of moved gradually into that Catholic world. And so I, I thought about sort of where most of the people that I run into at work, and I mean, basically that I met anywhere other than in my parish, uh, who mentioned being Catholic or sort of, yeah, I grew up Catholic, uh, or yeah, my parents are Catholic. Um, and it, it's, I mean, it, it's like saying, yeah, I grew up I, I grew up um, in an Irish family or I grew up in a German family. It, it, it's it's more something people talk about being from. Yeah, and I think right. that's a really common experience. Uh, I mean, in my generation, even really in my mom's generation, I mean, my mom was the oldest of seven and saw uh, most of her siblings either leave the church or leave the church for a while and come back. I think that's a huge part of the American Catholic experience. What is it? The, uh, the second largest denomination in the U.S. is ex-Catholics. Mm. Um, so I felt like that was something that a lot of people could identify with, was the, the sense of having come from Catholicism, not knowing it that well, maybe having a few negative feelings about it. And then I, I wanted to, to give these characters kind of a, a honest introduction to that world in the form of, of some, some pretty diverging characters. And you have their, their parents who have gone through a reversion and are at least to their to their children and children can have a pretty biased view of their parents. The parents don't seem at first like they have a very attractive uh, example uh, as these sort of new one Catholics. And I, I think to, to, um, to Jen and Katie at first, as, as we first meet them and, and to a lot of people who are watching this from the outside, it kind of seems like, oh, well, it's, it's pretty convenient to come back to the church now that you're getting older. I mean, you don't have to think about birth control you, you're, you're solidly married, so you're not going to have to worry about relationships, and now you'll have something to do in your retiring years. So, I mean, I, I think people can be pretty cynical about that and have yeah. this sort of attitude of, uh, old people, that, that's kind of different. Uh, and, and so it, I wanted to have that sort of soft entry into the Catholic world. Mm. Oh, that's great. Well, I, I just want to remind people that we're talking about If You Can Get It by Brendan Hodge, a new novel uh, from Ignatius Press.
My question, with regard to what you just said, this sort of this reversion, the, the older people kind of seemingly conveniently <laughs> reverting to Catholicism, um, which is probably an unfair characterization. Katie, at a certain point, criticizes her. Katie, who doesn't have any belief, she criticizes her mom's religion, her mom's newfound religion, and she describes it as kind of a prosperity theology, is what she says meaning that she sees virtue primarily as following specific rules and believes that if she could just get me to follow those rules, I'd be happy and do well in life. Whereas if she has scripture soup for the soul and read the book of Job out of her own Bible, she sees that real Judaism and Christianity have never said that God's will for your life is some kind of virtue-operated vending machine that pops out good fortune. It's a very, very harsh uh, criticism of her mom, which to me, I want to say that that seems like a very typical millennial it's kind of a millennial phenomenon to offer, to give these very harsh, penetrating critiques of your parents, but perhaps it's true of all of all generations. Um, but do you think that there's any validity at, uh, to that criticism of her mom, kind of living this this sort of vending machine gospel? I, mean, I guess I would say that this is a struggle that all of us as Catholics have. Is that I mean we know that. Um, God made us to live according to certain moral laws and that we, we are designed to thrive by following God's design. Uh, St. Paul talks about the law as actually being a gift, not being a negative thing, but being a gift. And we rejoice in the law because following God's law is actually good for us. Um, and, and I think that is true. At the same time, it's very easy to kind of slip into, okay, so now that I'm following these laws, it's going to be great for me. Um, and um, I, I guess I'm, I'm online enough. I, certain jokes uh, crystallizes memes for me, but there's the, uh, the image that goes around that has the painting of the Christians with the lions and it says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, um, and um, right. I, I mean, and we believe that the martyrs are, are living in perfect happiness in heaven. So, I mean, right. God did love those people and have a wonderful plan for the life. It wasn't wonderful from a worldly point of view. And so yeah. I think one of the things that we're constantly balancing is, yes, God did make us to thrive by following his law. But at the same time, that doesn't guarantee that things are going to be good for us right here in the world as we follow his law. And it, I think it's a very hard balance for all of us to strike. And, and that often when we're going through a, a change, it's easy to get over enthusiastic. And without even thinking about it, at least other people seem like we have a very pat. Uh, response to these things, and then eventually, uh, time experience tends to uh, beat that out of us. Hmm. There's another aspect of this novel that I think we need to talk about, which is uh, these extremely detailed, precise, uh, very picturesque—not well, picturesque, but uh, you know—I would say painterly descriptions of the uh, of uh, the business world, you know, the corporate world. Um, and for example. Uh, Jen goes on a trip to China and has all kinds of wild sort of Monty Python-like uh, experiences, but uh, th they wind up taking her, she winds up going to this place called the American Club, you know, that they bring her to this, 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 this place that I will describe just by quoting it here. Um, so that the, the, the people who run this, this factory that she's been touring, um, uh, they, they take her on a, they basically wine and dine her at this, this place called the American Club, and it's described this way. The lobby they stepped into was specific to the American Club, as indicated by a sign with the name of the club in giant block letters, 
above which flashed outlines of the Empire State Building, the Hollywood sign, and Mount Rushmore in glowing neon. In the center of this lobby stood a 10-foot-tall statue of Marilyn Monroe, garishly colored as if in technicolor made real, holding down her plaster skirt in a vain attempt to keep it from blowing up to expose her famous legs. And then there's, you know, there's like a giant pink Cadillac and stuffed Texas Longhorn. There's even a statue of Robert E. Lee with a Confederate flag like revolving. And did you, did you, did you encounter these sort of things in China yourself? Are, do these things, do these kinds of places exist? Um, there are, uh, there, there, there are, um, I have not been to a club precisely like this. I've been to some really garish uh, clubs while traveling for business. Um, but there is a sort of bizarre fascination with American kitsch in some other parts of the world. And uh, so, yeah, some of this is drawn from uh, experiences that colleagues have had while traveling in China uh, or places that they visited. And uh, I really, that, that night just spins into utter absurdity and yeah. gets, sort of gets worse and worse for Jen until she finally, sort of there's a catastrophe and she, and she has to bail. And I, I wanted a suitable setting for uh, this just absolutely terrible uh, night of business partying. And I mean, almost every night of business partying is terrible. It's one of those things that you do with colleagues and afterwards think, how did we get involved in this? So Brendan, I have another, what made you write a book about two sisters? Actually a viewer just asked this question. Um, why, why two sisters? Um, so I, I really, the thing that made, my, my kernel, my seed for this book was I, I wanted to write about this relationship between two siblings who hadn't known each other until they were adults uh, or, or were getting to know each other for the first time as adults. And uh, since I wanted to write a relationship story, um, I mean, I, I had I had to either have uh, I felt like I needed to have either two brothers or two th sisters. And I thought about it a bit. And uh, my experience is that, you know, guys are a lot better at the sort of. Uh, hey, we can ignore each other and sit on the couch next to each other and watch Netflix together kind of thing. You, you're not necessarily forced to examine your relationships as much. And I, I felt like if these were sisters, uh, I, I've, I've known a lot of really close sisters. And there's something special, I think, about that relationship between uh, grown women who are also sisters. I, I felt like I, we'd get a lot more diving into the relationship if they were, if they were sisters instead of brothers. Yeah, that's great. And I, I noticed that the two sisters, we're going to be wrapping up here in a minute, but the two sisters, um, you know, Katie and Jen, they, they both change over the course of the novel uh, for the better, but they change in opposite ways in a certain sense. You, you think that's true? All right, expand on that for a second. Yeah, I would say, well, um, Katie, is she develops, you know, chaotic, jobless Katie. She gets a job. She she gradually, her life gets more organized. She becomes more concerned with, uh, with with caring for the house, being responsible, um, you know, being diligent, doing things for others, which Jen, you know, Jen essentially already did that. She, at least she, she was organized and on the surface, she was already very good at things, good at these things. But whereas Jen, who was so orderly, in a certain sense, it's her, her losing her job and her, her kind of letting go a little bit of, of the order that she finally can tap into these, these, uh, these human relationships that, uh, that she's been ignoring for so many years. I mean, do you think that that's a fair uh, assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a um, sort of a white carpeted sterility to the the world that Jen has built for herself at first. It is very orderly, but it, it's not very human. And uh, during the course of the novel, she, 
I mean, I think she partly realizes that her her corporate world she's built for herself is not necessarily as orderly as she uh, likes to and as predictable as she'd like to think it is. Uh, that you don't always, I guess, to to reference back to Katie's point about uh, religion and morality, you don't always get back the reward for what you did. Um, and and but she also recognizes a need for like a human messiness and um, and allowing r relationships and family to break up that kind of orderly, uh, worldly um, order that she's put together for herself. Um, so it, I would like to think that the two of them achieve sort of a golden mean there. I mean, both are kind of, they've been out at these extremes and they're kind of swinging into the center where, uh, where virtue is found. So the last question we're gonna take here is from Yvonne and she asks, do you have, do you have a next book in mind? Or are you gonna stick with fiction? Uh, I, I will definitely stick with fiction. Uh, I don't know that I have a, a nonfiction book in me, though I, I do continue to blog nonfiction. Um, but uh, I have ambitions both to write uh, a, a historical novel or two at some point and also to uh, return to uh, sort of the corporate world like this maybe uh, a little bit later in life. When I first kicked off this project, I was uh, rounding 30 and trying to get a job as a director. I've, I've done that for eight years now. and. Uh, past 40 and, and you sort of get a different perspective on life. And if I was gonna take on a big challenge there, it's really, really hard to write fiction about married couples that are not un actively unhappy because fiction is built around conflict. Uh, so that's a, a challenge that I, I sure. uh, I'm kind of sizing up for myself uh, one of these days. That is a very interesting point. Well, with that, I think we are going to, Say goodbye, Brennan. It has been such a pleasure to to talk to you and to see your face at last. I've been communicating with you for the last year or so. It's good to see your uh, see your face. Good to see you too. And I want to remind everybody that Brendan and his wife Kat they run a blog. Uh, it's DarwinCatholic.blogspot.com. And uh, yeah, please please visit it and please buy if you can get it by Brendan Hodge through uh, Ignatius Press at Ignatius.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.